Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows being gay is not a choice, except when it is, in which case you should definitely choose it. <laughs> Today we have Ozzy, Zoe, and Adelaide. And today we are talking about conversion therapy. Boo. I know. <laughs> yeah, we. It's bad. Enemy Spo- of the pod. End. End of the episode. It's bad. Okay. Um, <laughs> <We're> no. <done. laughs> so <laughs> I know this is like a little bit of a heavier topic, um, or really a lot, a bit of a heavier topic. Um, and I just wanted to let y'all know that, like, we are going to be talking about some sad, horrible shit, but it's not going to be entirely sad, horrible shit. Um, So we're going to go like a little bit into the history and current status of conversion therapy in the U.S., um, but we will also be talking about some fictional media depictions that I think like, while they still obviously deal with dark themes because they are mentioning or like alluding to the idea of conversion therapy, um, I think some of these shows and movies are like on the more, and books actually, are on the more sort of feel-good side and like have have a conclusion that sort of like looks to a post-conversion therapy future in a way that I think is really nice. Yeah, no, absolutely. We will try to, you know, (laughs) add some sweetness where we can on this extremely fucked up topic. Um, But that won't be right at this moment. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So I just wanted to say that when we're talking about conversion therapy, we're specifically talking about queer and trans conversion therapy. And I just wanted to acknowledge that there is a long history of um, particularly around Christianity, which this is also obviously around Christianity, so same roots, of all indigenous cultures basically being in a a type of this that is um, assimilating into whiteness, essentially. Um, And so I just wanted to just acknowledge that there are similar versions of what we're talking about that affected a different group of people, but that's not really what we're going to get into today. Yeah, totally. And I think we'll talk about this like a little bit later, but um, definitely like conversion therapy as a sort of approach to therapy has a lot of a lot of like tentacles in a lot of different places and impacts a lot of different marginalized communities. So, yeah, we're going to focus on queer and trans folks today, but um, there's a lot of what we're saying will also apply to other forms of behavior that um, like a Christian therapist or other, you know, folks who are in this sort of conversion world um, might, like, want to change as well, um, or might be against. But yeah, I wanted to start out by talking a little bit about just, like, where the idea for this episode came from. Um, I mean, I think obviously we're in a moment where we're seeing a lot of danger for queer and trans youth, um, and, like, a lot of legal changes that are making it a lot harder for queer and trans people generally, but kids especially, to live as their full selves. Um, But I also just kind of feel like we're in this interesting moment in terms of media that's being created about conversion therapy. Um, So I guess my sort of initial impulse for this episode came because I 
have been, they just put on Hulu some old episodes of MTV's True Life, um, which was like, I think started in the 90s, but like went through the 2000s. Um, I was watching some episodes from like 2007, 2008-ish. Um, but Basically, um, I was watching this episode, which is called I Want to Be Straight, um, which is like a pretty horrifying way to frame this for reasons I will get into. Um, but watching this episode just really made me think about how like the late 90s to sort of early 2010s um, was this very specific era in like I think mostly queer identity as it was understood in the mainstream, but like transness and gender nonconformity to some extent as well. Um, we'll get into this more a little bit with the history, but there was like this period of time before the 1950s where sexuality was seen as pretty set, like even if homosexuality was rejected by mainstream society, um, a lot of scientists considered it like impossible to change that. Um, and then there was a period of time that, like, started sort of, like, early to mid-1900s through the 1980s, where it was considered more possible to, like, eliminate queerness or transness with conversion therapy, that it was, like, possible to change people in some way. Um, but by the late 90s, it was this contradiction where, like, being gay wasn't necessarily solely being viewed as evil anymore by like the medical establishment um there was some degree of understanding that queerness and transness were normal parts of like human variation and were not you know something bad um and queerness was no longer necessarily illegal um by this point but there was this sort of thing of like I guess the medical establishment, but also the government sort of turning a blind eye to abusive medical practices often happening, um, like outside of the context of like an actual medical doctor or like, um, some type of licensed therapist, but also including licensed therapists. Um, and I think, I guess just like this, the way it was portrayed in this episode, I think really got to this sort of like, ignoring something that was in plain sight that I think um, folks in power and also just a lot of mainstream society was not looking at. Um, I think the way that it's framed in this episode, I mean, it's called I Want to Be Straight, but it's about two young people who are trying to stop expressing like queer sexuality and like dating queer people because it's been very damaging to their lives and like ability to survive. Um, so like this one girl, her story is she came out to her mom and her mom stabbed her with a knife. And she was like, I think I should go back in the closet now. Or like, I think I should try to be straight so that I can have a relationship with my mom and like not have this threat of violence. Um, so there's very clearly like a, physical threat being made to her but the episode is framed as like it's sort of consensual because she wants to change because she wants to have a relationship with her mom um she wants her mom to not violently attack her but it's sort of like this attitude that um you can like get someone to stop gender non-conforming behavior or like stop seeking out queer sex but you aren't going to be able to actually stop them from having those desires. Um, so there's this aspect of it too that's like, I think in this time period, a lot of 
the way conversion therapists were framing it was sort of like, you're not going to be able to stop having gay feelings, but you should just not act on them. Um, and there, the other person in this episode um, is a guy who kept saying he used to be part of the homosexual lifestyle, um, which I just thought was so That's what they all strange. say. And yeah, I mean, it is what they all say, but it's like, I feel all like it's been so long. <laughs> right. I feel like it's been so long since I've actually heard anyone say that, that it's just like, I feel like in my day-to-day -day life now, it's very hard to remember why there was a period of time where it felt very important to be like born this way, being gay is not a choice because like when Christian therapists and like this whole conversion therapy uh, like complex is framing it as something that's so easy to just like stop acting on at like you can just flip a switch and stop being gay or stop having gay sex. Um, it's like that's very it's it sort of like trivializes it it makes it seem like it's just this like superficial thing that you can very easily change um and i feel like it just reminded me why it's sort of like important um why at this point in time it was so important for queer activists to be like no there are like very deep things about who we are at play here um and that's why sort of that born this way narrative became such an important part of organizing at this time um like this idea that you can't just you can't think this is something you can like mess with and play around with um in people's brains without like seriously fucking them up um and this is probably obvious to especially any queer or trans people listening but just to note the research does support what like inherently feels true to me that surviving conversion therapy is associated with increased depression and suicidality um but i guess to turn to a slightly less dark note on all of this um i also feel like in recent years like just the past few years there's been like a renewed awareness in mainstream media that conversion therapy is still an ongoing practice especially for trans youth um like i was talking about that impulse to sort of like turn away and ignore what's going on it sort of feels like it's maybe changing a little bit um there was recently this really great piece in the cut by um, this writer, Grace Byron, about her experience with anti-trans conversion therapy. Um, she grew up in Indiana. Um, and then, like I was saying, I think there have also been some recent fictional depictions that I think in some sense are just reflective of like queer people getting slightly more control over media and like the things that loom largest in the queer imaginary is scary conversion camp and conversion therapy obviously are some of those things um but i think it's also the fact that we're once again in a really heightened moment of transphobia um, and the threat of conversion practices are very real for so many kids and so it feels important to talk about um so one project that really exemplifies this sort of energy to me is this documentary from last year conversion um which the creator was inspired to make after he realized his conversion therapist who abused him like 20 years ago was still practicing and was still abusing kids so he was like i need to make this documentary to expose this person and like show what i went through and also show what's still going on um there was also this new podcast that just came out like i think a couple of months ago maybe called dear alana um which is this queer catholic journalist who's like investigating uh, a young woman who committed suicide after receiving Catholic conversion therapy. Um, and he's sort of like looking into what 
the Catholic establishment um, has to say about this and about conversion therapy generally. Um, and there was also another great recent documentary that I know Zoe wants to tell us more about. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Pray Away, which came out in 2021. I was going to say last year. That's not last year. Um, two years ago. Might as well be. What is that? <laughs> it's on Netflix. It was produced and directed by Christine Stolakis. And this is the first feature length documentary that um, she directed. So the documentary follows survivors of conversion therapy, as well as some former leaders who have since realized the horrors of what they were engaging with um, and are kind of like taking the mask off, talking about what it was like. And I'm going to give a very hot take here, which is that not all conversion therapy is like as overt as media depictions of it. And therefore, like mm -hmm. what people view as conversion therapy. So having a therapist who's, whose view is that like being gay or trans is pathological or needs treatment is conversion therapy if they're utilizing their power as like the therapist to push their morals and ideas onto the client and be like, no, that's wrong. Um, because people really trust their therapists, I say as a therapist. And if your therapist is like, this behavior is harmful to you, not that everyone believes that, but that it, you're in a position of power where it's more difficult for the other person to push against that or be like, well, I guess this like professional right. is telling me this thing, especially people that don't have access to, to this kind of information outside of that space. So anyway, back to the documentary, um, they showed a lot of things and that they would try to like convince folks that they didn't need to be fully straight. Kind of like Ozzy was saying, the idea wasn't like you have to become straight. It was that you need to find at least one person or specifically one person of the quote opposite gender. <laughs> exactly can, like, spend, one person. Exactly fact. one person <laughs> who you can like spend your life with, have kids or get married, then have kids and live like a heterosexual lifestyle. So something that's really interesting about this documentary is that the people who went through conversion therapy and then were a part of creating propaganda for it explain the behind the scenes strategies and coercion. So I wanted to share some of the many things that stuck out for me from that. So I made a little list. I'm going to read you my bullet points and we'll get into them. So the first thing I wrote, and these were just notes I was taking as I was watching, having their quote success stories go on stage and claim to be straight because they were technically in hetero relationships. So kind of like what I was saying, they would have these people go on stage and be like, look, I'm straight. I am a man who has a wife and we have a child. And even though like we don't have a sex life and I don't really love her that much, that's okay. I am straight now. Um, and just like giving these stories. My second bullet point is people feeling the obligation to confess everything to the people running the conversion. So for example, um, Someone in the documentary talks about how when she was younger, she had sexual abuse happen to her. Um, and she told the people running the conversion therapy this, like, in trust. That was her therapist. She was like, this is my trauma. And then when she was one of the spokespeople, they, like, really pressured her and coerced her into sharing those details because they said that otherwise her story was, like, not as moving. And so at first when they told her that, she still didn't do it. And then they were like, hey, like, basically, you really need to share this. And then she felt very, like, re-traumatized because she didn't want to share that information with a stage of people. But they thought that it made it more like, see, she was, like, sexually assaulted. Then she became a lesbian. And look at how we're saving her from both of those things. Um, okay, next on the list, the Freedom March, which is a march for people who left the, quote, LGBTQ lifestyle. Um, there it is, I think that's still an annual march, if I'm not mistaken i don't know but i feel like i would totally buy it i actually i do kind of feel like i heard about something like this they were still showing year. it in the documentary which leads me to believe it's still happening but that was a couple years ago 
it seems like it's at least still an active organization for sure okay yeah yeah they have a website that looks horrifying so i bet it does (laughs) (laughs) um the next thing on my list is just a quote that one of the people in documentary said which when they were like on stage doing this propaganda which is men and women's body parts come together to create a single organism for the purpose of creating (laughs) children oh they were basically like gender right there yeah they were like (laughs) why would you have sex with anyone where like men and women's body parts fit together so easily i was like oh that's interesting (laughs) hot take and then last we have what they called the slippery slope argument which like we've all heard it's this idea of like if you allow gay marriage you have to allow like what's next people are going to marry their pets and like looking more closely at this idea how they were wording it is that if we allow people to get married based on attraction then you have to allow like child brides then like where does that stop like if someone's attracted to children if someone's attracted to animals and of course we know these are like ridiculous arguments that is in fact not how (laughs) sexuality or laws work but um and the people who who would say these things were talking about how they like knew that they were utilizing these scare tactics to convince people who otherwise were on the fence of like not really having strong ways one way or the another one way or another about like same-sex marriage at this point in time at that point in time um that these scare tactics would convince them to be like, mm, yeah, no, that does seem bad. Like, we're against it. That's so interesting. I feel like, um, I don't know, the just the way that, like, they present these sort of, like, poster children uh, seems so horrifying also. Like, yeah. it's, it's a lot. Yeah, um, and it's like, all of those things, like, yes, I think we and our listeners know to be true, but hearing the people that are, like, doing it or we're doing talk about, like, oh, yeah, of course we know we're, like, making shit up to scare people, but also it's effective. Right. Totally. Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the history of, like, how how these ideas came into, like, the therapy establishment and then where things are at today. Um So when I was doing research for this episode, I actually didn't really realize that the earliest form of conversion therapy was hypnotism, um, which does make sense because this was sort of from like the Freud uh, era of psychology. So like Freud and several other German and Austrian scientists who were studying sexuality in this time, it's like 1880s to 1930s or so, um, they were working off of this sort of existing understanding of what was called sexology at the time, um, which was basically that sexuality was set from a pretty early age. I mean, as we've talked about with Freud on the show before, the idea is like experiences you have as a child determine your sexuality. But um, so it's not like inborn, but it is like set quite young. Um, And so the idea as this was sort of being developed was like, queerness shouldn't be treated as a crime as long as people didn't act on it. Um, And as long as you don't act on it are really the key words. Gay sex was still a crime in all of these places, but the idea was that people weren't going to stop having queer desires, so instead the goal is just like to get people to stop acting on them. Very similar to sort of what we see with like the Prey Way, the things folks are talking about in the Prey Way documentary, except that they actually would just come out and say, like, Freud would just be like, people are still going to have queer desires, but, like, maybe we could also make them have straight desires. I'm not sure. 
Um, so the leading theory of queerness at the time, which I know we've mentioned on the show before, was this idea called sexual inversion. It was basically this idea that you were born with the soul of the opposite gender from the one you were assigned at birth in your body. Um, so before like the sort of trans tipping point and like mainstream understanding of transness that we have today, this wasn't really viewed as like a cohesive moral problem. It was actually widely believed by scientists that all trans people were intersex, that is that they had like a hormonal imbalance that was causing them to have these trans feelings. Um, so while the typical treatment for this was still to try to like stop and eliminate the queerness or transness that was going on, there were actually several cases in which doctors came to believe that the best treatment for the person was to medically transition um, in similar ways, you know, early versions, but similar ways to like the hormone regimens and um, surgical procedures that many trans people seek out today. Um, of course, the fact that you had to fight your way through hypnotic conversion therapy and like be forcibly put on hormones and all this other shit before being even considered to like actually transition means that it was incredibly inaccessible. This was not a desirable model of healthcare by any means. Um, but I think it's useful to point out that like this idea of transness as a cohesive identity even, and also as like a moral problem is relatively new, um, which I think also helps explain why early conversion therapy didn't distinguish transness as a specific thing to be forced out of someone. It was all sort of seen as like one problem, quote unquote, that all went together, like queerness, transness, gender nonconformity. Um, as time went on, the medical and legal establishment became more consolidated around these ideas. As tends to happen, it's like it started out, they were like, we don't really know exactly what's going on, so maybe it's not evil. And then like time passes and they're like, actually, it's evil, let's get rid of it. Um, so this idea of like queerness and transness as a disease that needed some combo of like legal oversight and medical treatment to be stopped. Um, in 1952, homosexuality was one of many sexual disorders listed in the first DSM. Um, it wasn't removed until 1973. And in the 60s and 70s, as behavioral therapy became more popular for changing other behaviors seen as undesirable, these techniques also started to be used in an attempt to eliminate queerness. Um, so this is the more stereotypical conversion therapy treatment that Zoe was sort of alluding to earlier when they mentioned, like, not all conversion therapy is as bad as what you might think. This is, like, the bad version you might imagine of, like, shock therapy or, like, giving someone something to make them feel nauseous while they're watching gay porn. Um, like, those sorts of really over-the-top, like, violent um, physical interventions on people. Um, these practices, as soon as they started, were receiving some amount of backlash from queer activists and, you know, there's always been like a small contingent of non-terrible therapists. Um, so these folks began organizing against conversion therapy, um, and starting around the 1970s, um, their work started to have some impact. There was definitely a vibe of like, these more overt physical practices sort of falling out of favor. Um, but unfortunately, these sort of more underground tactics sort of rose up to take their place as that sort of like overt violence was no longer as easy to get away with. Um, and this sort of general like label for this type of therapy from like the science side of things is reparative therapy. Um, so 
over like the 70s, 80s, and 90s, this sort of like went out of favor of being endorsed by doctors, but it was still legal. So like religious leaders and such could still very legally try to pressure people out of being gay. Um, and often like this still involved physical abuse, um, whether or not that was like known by the broader community. Um, but it was slightly less likely that it would be like someone with a medical degree abusing you. Um, and as Addie mentioned earlier, we are specifically focusing on queer conversion therapy, but these um, reparative therapy practices, um, which included shock therapy, were also used to abuse many other people seen as deviant by the medical establishment or the state. Um, this includes autistic people, people who were arrested for like so-called vice crimes, like public drug use or doing sex work. Um, and one of the main proponents of gay conversion therapy also pioneered autistic conversion therapy that is still very much ongoing, um, like the shock therapy, those kinds of things are still happening to autistic folks all the time. Um, and that continues to have a lot more backing from the mainstream medical establishment and like the nonprofit complex surrounding autism research. Um, so like Adelaide was saying, this has also been used against folks who are racialized, indigenous folks, black folks, um, anyone who could be viewed as like outside of this idea of like perfect white heterosexual society um, that the medical establishment was trying to push people towards. Um, but for the most part, it's not used that way anymore, but there are still some cases, especially for neurodivergent folks, particularly neurodivergent folks of color, where these um, really horrific things are still done to people. Um, so in terms of transness specifically being pathologized, gender identity disorder was added to the DSM in 1980 and changed to gender dysphoria in 2012. Um, so while queer conversion therapy is like the mainstream medical opinion is firmly anti-conversion therapy for queer kids but that's not quite as much the case for trans kids i mean it is true that the medical establishment is like don't do literal conversion therapy on trans kids but there is still this weird sort of exception of like i do think that with transness doctors and really ultimately insurance companies as well are sort of still saying that it needs to be classified as a disease in order for like hormones or surgery or other medical treatment to be prescribed. And so I think there's this tension between like, you know, leading medical organizations wanting to say like, we're being trans friendly now, but like ultimately transness is still sort of being pathologized. Yeah. I wanted to say something about that because, um, I work with a lot of trans clients and therefore sometimes with the gender dysphoria diagnosis. And mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of folks that are like, have the idea that anytime you use that diagnosis is bad. And I want to be clear. I don't think the diagnosis should exist. I don't think anything I'm about to say should be the way it is. And yet it is. And therefore this is the use of the diagnosis. So in most, if not all places, in order to medically transition, you have to have a gender dysphoria diagnosis. And that's bad. And I'm not saying that is how it should be. Um, however, as that is the case, like one thing that I do when I have clients that are talking about their gender is A, decide 
or, you know, talk to them about whether or not they're ever going to be seeking medical transition. If not, there's no reason to use it. If they are and need to use it, then we have a conversation about like the pros and cons. The pros being that is how you access medical care, which is fucked up. The cons being that once it is in your notes, your insurance has access. Um, if it's like shared, the system I currently use is not shared with medical facilities, but where I used to work was shared with medical facilities because it was just the same, like those like wellness apps, um, then they have access. And so thinking about that. And so I think there are ways to, with how it currently is like, have those conversations and be very transparent with people about like what your medical records look like and who has access to that information. Um, whereas like part of what I'm thinking of is I've had, I've had coworkers be like, you should never use the diagnosis. Like it's messed up. And I'm like, it is messed up. Also our clients can't actually access the care that they want if we're not willing to talk to them about it and, right. and use it if that's what they want. Yes, I feel like, yeah, that's totally the approach I would use. Like, I mean, I've worked in like high schools, for example, where there's like mandatory reporter rules. Um, I feel like whenever you're in like, yeah, like that, just that type of like position of like slight power over someone, like just making sure that they have all the information, I think is really key. Like, even if you're not able, e even if there's a limited amount of options you can offer someone, just like saying what those are, because it is different for everyone. And like, you know, like you're saying, you just need that diagnosis to get care. So it's like, you know, sometimes there is no other choice. Right. Um, like if the people who are like, you know, queer and trans, you know, themselves or allies are like, I'm not going to use that because that's messed up. Then like clients still have to go somewhere to get that diagnosis, to get the care they want. And therefore they're going to right. someone who probably doesn't think it's that fucked up and yes, that's where exactly <laughs> yeah it's like you don't want the only people doing it to be people who are like yes transness is a weird brain disease exactly <laughs> but yeah this is i like one of the things that just like really i just like always have to tell people because i was really shocked when i learned it is that like a big part of the reason this is the case in the united states is because of insurance companies because they're specifically worried that like I mean, really specifically, like, doctors, medical insurance companies, um, they're worried that, like, if you didn't have to have a diagnosis, then people would just, like, randomly get surgery and then Famously sue the doctor true. and be like, yeah, fame, everyone <laughs> loves random surgery. Like, yep. I get Famously, surgery for fun all the time. All the time. Mm -hmm. um, and it's still, like, incredibly expensive. But anyway, um, basically, the fear is that people would sue doctors being like, well, you didn't confirm that I actually, like wanted this top surgery and you like abusively took away my breasts and now i'm mad at you um and like that is really more so than any like medical reasoning behind why it's like needed for safety why this system exists of like needing a diagnosis before you can start care um there are some exceptions sort of like starting to happen to this um i don't know like every state where this is the case i would guess like other liberal places potentially california could be one but um in new york there is an informed consent model for hormones which basically means that you do not need any sort of diagnosis to get on hrt you can just go to like a planned parenthood or that sort of clinic and you basically just sign a thing that's like 
they told me about the risks of this and I'm okay with that. And then you get to start taking the hormones without having to be diagnosed by someone. Um, I think it's pretty unlikely that we will see that become the case with any type of surgical intervention just because of how worried insurers are about people suing over this. But that's like, at least in my mind, a slight um, improvement that like you don't necessarily need that diagnosis um, for all forms of medical transition. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, at least where I'm in Illinois, that's true as well, that you don't need it for HRT, um, but you do need it for surgeries. But then there's the fun insurance complication of like, if you just get so, the like, diagnosis right before if... surgery, then that can be a thing. And like, they can honestly totally. decide at whim. Sometimes that's not a problem and it's totally fine. And sometimes it's a problem. Well, it's all so, We love insurance. Here. <laughs> um, but Yes, let's get back to the history of all of this. Um, so we were talking about like gender dysphoria, gender identity disorder was added in 1980, and then in 2012 it was changed to gender dysphoria. Um, and I think Zoe's going to talk a little bit about how that dovetailed with like what was going on legally at that time. Yeah, so conversion therapy was legal everywhere in the United States until September 30th, 2012. I'm going to say that again. Conversion therapy was legal everywhere in the United States until 2012. Love um, it here. We love it. <laughs> mm -hmm, that was just about 11 years ago. And that is when Governor Jerry Brown signed into law in California's Senate Bill 1171, making it the first state in the country to protect LGBTQ youth from the practice. And so that only applied to youth. As of January 2019, 15 states, dozens of municipalities, and Washington, D.C. have passed measures protecting LGBTQ youth from conversion therapy. However, conversion therapy remains a widespread problem. In January of 2018, the Williams Institute estimated that 20,000 LGBTQ youth in the 41 states that did not protect them from it at the time would undergo the dangerous practice before they turn 18. The Williams Institute also estimates that 698,000 LGBTQ adults in the U.S. have undergone conversion therapy and that 6,000 LGBTQ youth who live in states that laws protecting them from conversion therapy would have undergone the practice if their state had not passed protections. And so now... We're going to get up to where are we now with protections. So currently, conversion therapy is banned for children in 22 states plus Washington, D.C., famously not a state. <laughs> there are um, five additional states plus Puerto Rico that have partial bans on it. The one state of Indiana is the only state currently that has laws in place that prohibit banning conversion therapy. And there are three Great. other states... There are three other states, Atlanta, Georgia, Florida, that are currently trying to pass a similar thing to Indiana. And that yeah. is all just as it relates Fucking to children. Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is all only as it relates to children. When looking at adults, only 11 states ban conversion therapy use on adults. And that equates to about 27% of LGBTQ adults living in places where it is illegal and 73% therefore being at risk. Um, and this information comes from two different maps that track these laws, which we'll link in the show notes. Um, because yeah, they have more information and it'll they will update as as things hopefully change. Uh, except in Atlanta, Florida, and Georgia, hopefully they don't change anytime soon because they are the current potential laws are not good. <laughs> the potential change is bad. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I feel like it is just interesting how much I think it does make sense to me that these laws have mostly started out focusing on youth because I feel like it's easier to make the argument that it's clearly abusive if like a queer trans kid is being put into this therapy like it's clear how it's obviously against their will whereas for adults i think it's a little bit harder to make the argument it's like a little bit easier for people to frame it as like well they're adults they can consent to go to a christian therapist who abuses them if they want to it's weird how like you it's fine like you can consent to having abusive therapy done on you but you can't consent to a surgery you want like it's just sort of a weird um double standard there i would say fucking sense yeah well anyway turning a little bit to i guess since we're talking about where things are at today um zoe i wanted to ask what your experience has been like as someone doing therapeutic work like how much is conversion therapy mentioned in your training um good question thank you for asking i wish it was mentioned more I don't really remember talking about it much during grad school outside of maybe just like, oh, yeah, that was bad, um, but not really covering like the history of it or anything. We did cover um, ABA and shock therapy used for neurodivergence, especially with folks on the autism spectrum, um, more than like gay related conversion therapy specifically. Quick story. I had this professor who he was awful um, and we were talking about like the use of shock therapy. And we were all like, no, we hate that. And he was like, you're probably okay using it on your dog, right? Like those like shock colors. And I was like, I would not have that anywhere near my dog. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not okay with it on yeah, humans. No. I'm not okay with it on my pets. Like I'm actually just not okay with it. Um, but anyway, <laughs> because as I said, I work almost exclusively with queer and trans clients. I've learned a lot more about it from that and like the places I've worked and the people I have worked with than any like formalized training. So I wanted to share a little bit more about what I've learned through like my own research and trainings on helping clients to unlearn and um, recover from conversion therapy. If you are in Chicago or Illinois, feel free to reach out because I have more like specific resources for folks around here since, since that's where I am. But overall, there's actually very little known about interventions that are helpful for folks who are like recovering from these experiences. The main thing that comes up even in like studies, quote unquote studies, there's like not many, but just like brief studies is talking about affirmative therapy, which is just like, as it sounds, telling people that they are valid. And while that sounds very obvious, that can go a really long way when you're talking about people who have actually had people go far out of their way to convince them that they are invalid. Um, And people that are from environments where that wasn't really like something that was talked about. And so hang on. Okay, sorry. Pisces is acting like she saw a ghost. (laughs) And I thought maybe Pisces saw a ghost. So. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, so I want to talk about (laughs) um, Judith Herman, who is someone that's done a lot of work on looking at ways to help people unlearn conversion therapy. And she uses a feminist perspective on trauma theory and practice, which our next episode also has to do with feminist um, therapy. So. I don't know. It's like therapy, therapy month or something here at Season of the Bitch. (laughs) (laughs) But Herman (laughs) describes many of the features characteristic of a traumatized individual. And one of the features includes reliving the trauma in thoughts, actions, and dreams. And this phenomenon is particularly relevant in working with clients after conversion therapy. 
So for example, many clients who've undergone conversion therapy report a persistent sexual dysfunction. Um, And when we say sexual dysfunction, that essentially means that your sex life is not going the way that you would like it to. Not like that you need to reach some norm, but that you're not sexually fulfilled for XYZ reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, So for clients who received aversion stimuli, such as electric shock, um, sexual intimacy, intimacy can bring back the moment of conversion therapy trauma, and they're unable to continue sexual activities. Um, Like Ozzy said, if they're using things like making you nauseous when you view gay porn, when you're in a gay, a gay sexual situation or, you know, a similar situation to that, like your body can still have that reaction, even if you know, as an adult who's no longer in that situation, that those things you were taught weren't true, like your body has been trained with these responses. And so um, that can create debilitating effects. So um, Judith Herman coined the term dialectic of trauma, and she used that to describe the the converse of intrusive reliving experiences in which the traumatized individual vacillates between states of complete numbness and amnesia of the trauma to states of overwhelming sensitivity and reliving of the event. And so her idea is that, um, you know, clinicians working with individuals in post-conversion therapy should recognize this, like, vacillation and cultivate awareness of the dangers and emotional distress Involved in both of these states, right? Being underwhelmed or overwhelmed by your emotions can be equally dangerous. And so, according to Herman, the emotional reliving state could produce complete inhibition in the client, creating a variety of unsafe situations ranging from self-harm, substance use, and unsafe sex. And then the numbness and complete lack of feeling may lead to extreme isolation and the development of symptoms around depression, things like that. And both are pertinent concerns for individuals who identify as LGBTQ. So I definitely recommend her work if folks are looking to understand more of like the clinical perspective on treating people after they've undergone conversion therapy. Totally. Um, Well, now is the promised time where we're going to talk about some more fun, light things. As promised. Um, We've reached the promised promised land, people. Yes, here it is. The promised Um, land. (laughs) So, like I was saying earlier, I feel like there have been sort of a recent wave of media about conversion therapy, and then there's also some, like, classic um, queer stuff about conversion therapy that we wanted to talk about. Um, so let's start oh, off yeah, with some of the classics. Um, absolutely. Uh, first of all, round of applause for my brilliant co-host. Am I right? <laughs> I feel like this is like <laughs> the wow, latest I've so come much. in on an episode in so long. But I'm obsessed. I'm like, Addie has been here all along. I have. I have <laughs> listening. Maybe Addie was the ghost that Pisces oh! saw. Oh, it's very possible. <laughs> I astral projected into your room to like give you a hug under this fucked up Scorpio moon. Hey, um, if anyone could do it, it's you. Thank you. Um. Anyway, hey everyone, how you doing? Um. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, the first movie or, or piece of media that we're going to talk about is a fucking classic. It's my favorite movie. It's but I'm a cheerleader. Um, this oh, yeah. came out in 1999. It like was released at a um, at TIFF uh, in 1999, and really wasn't available to people until 2000. But you know the era, you know the okay. time. Um, yes, it's extremely Y2K. Let's go. Um, 
And in case you're not familiar with it, I know we've definitely talked about it on our other like queer media episodes, but it's a satirical comedy directed by Jamie Babbitt. Um, and it centers around a character named Megan Bloomfield, who's played by the perfect Natasha Leone. Um, and she's a high school cheerleader whose parents sent her to a residential inpatient conversion therapy camp to, quote unquote, cure her lesbianism. Um, and this camp is run by ex-gays, uh, LOL. Uh, and they're played by RuPaul and Kathy Moriarty, and it's extremely iconic. Um, and like, it's all every single element is tongue in cheek. Um, like, even the yes, ex, it's very campy. Like the moment he's like, "I too once was a homosexual, but now I'm an ex-gay," and then like Kathy Moriarty's characters son comes out and is like weed whacking and immediately RuPaul is like losing his fucking mind so it's just like it's it it plays so well like you never are down for any amount of time (laughs) in this movie (laughs) um and the director Jamie Babbitt said that she used the story of a young woman finding her sexual identity to explore the social construct of gender roles and also heteronormativity. So I love this movie because even though there's not like a ton of trans themes, it definitely is centered around gender and what the performance of gender really is, um, particularly in a heterosexual like relationship. Mm-hmm. And all of the costumes, the set design, all highlight that um and it also there's a lot of like different textures like there's like vinyl for like in in parts rather than soft things like it's all very very um camp and you know the intense blues and pinks that you would expect to um of course be our gender representation (laughs) yes Um, But yeah, it's extremely feel-good, hilarious, and while being at a conversion therapy camp, like, the gays win at the end of the day, and, like, everyone's gay, so um, really can't recommend it enough. It's It's been free on YouTube for a really long time. I'm assuming it still is, and it's usually Amazing. elsewhere, like, on a rotation as well. Um, so the next one is a combo book and movie like there was a movie adaptation um i haven't reread the book lately but this was the book the book came out in 2012 um and i when i read this book it really was one of those books that just like confirmed my queerness in me um i was just like oh yeah okay yeah this is me also And I think that that in and of itself is like a pretty powerful thing for media to be able to do. Um, Anyways, this is a book or and movie about a conversion therapy camp in the 90s. And I would not say that this is a light book or movie. Um, The end still has like some feel goodness to it um, in that there's freedom reached for our protagonists. Okay, but I do really love the movie adaptation. First of all, like the 90s fashion, here for it, 110%. 
the main character, Cameron Post, is played by Chloe Grace Moretz. Um, we love her. And her BFFs are played by Sasha Lane and Forrest Goodluck. Um, and Sasha Lane is like an absolute icon and is in other queer media like Hearts Beat Loud. Um, and Forrest Goodluck um, plays an indigenous character who's two-spirit. And so I love that there's this kind of like early non-binary representation that I don't think we really had at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. I do think it is an interesting look and a poignant look at the guilt and struggle queer youth and adults because like some of the like people running the camp clearly struggle with their own identities as well. It's this look at the internal shame and... um, just like what anyone goes through when there's this shameful church crushing down on you as a person. Um, And it shows the ways that people deal with that um, shame and guilt. Like there's absolutely characters who are consumed by that and want to be straight. Um, And there is like, you know, a lot of the... um, dangers that have already been mentioned like self-harm that come because of that and there also is representation of youth who feel less of that guilt like they they're like this isn't actually wrong but they still have to come up against the oppressive structures within christianity and obviously a society heavily influenced by christianity as well um and I do I do recommend it um on both accounts. It even though it's not light, I do think there's something about their friendships that is like an amazing illustration of the solidarity that comes from queer friendships. Um and this like really it's like a it's a different level of powerful bond because of the risk that you share with each other by having the identity that you have um and something i'm realizing and basically all the instant all of these um examples we're going to be talking about is like the feel-good solution is either the conversion the conversion therapy being shut down or the people being murdered who run it, or <laughs> the people who were forced to be there. Again, in all these cases by parents, which is obviously related back to like the consent piece we were talking about before, um, mm-hmm. get to escape. So all the media surrounding these things just amplify what we already know, that these things are so fucked up and shouldn't exist and cause massive amounts of harm. And like the good element is when they don't exist or people get away from them. <laughs> really hot. Yes. What? Totally. I said really hot takes here at Season of the Mission. That's right. Conversion therapy, bad. <laughs> Heard it here first. <laughs> I mean, we said it at the beginning of the episode. That really just could have been the whole episode. Yeah, exactly. It's bad. Um, but yeah, I feel like I totally agree with what you're saying. And I think, um, in terms of these three pieces of media that I'm about to talk about that are like recent and upcoming, the ones that I like the most, I think like get that and sort of understand like what is scary about conversion therapy. And then the ones that I don't like as much, it's like, it feels like there was a misunderstanding of like that simple truth that conversion therapy is bad right um so the first one i want to talk about we did talk about this in our last um 
Halloween's queer horror episode. Um, but this is from 2022. It's called They Them or possibly They Slap Them, them, I think is the (laughs) official way you're supposed to pronounce it. But Oh, like a slasher? Yes, yes. but we we hate that because Yeah. First of all, there's only one person who uses they them pronouns and they don't get killed and they don't kill anyone so even if that is supposed to be the title it like doesn't make any sense because they don't slash them say that again um the main character person i forget their name yeah like the main i feel like i mean it's sort of like a don't they kill the lady at the end the main character yeah you might right i think i honestly don't even remember it's been okay i think you're right i don't so even if that's the case, though, they slashed her. So, yeah, um, that was. <laughs> what if it was they slash she? Um, that actually would have been amazing. But that would have been amazing. Yeah, I we talked we talked a lot last year about like some of our issues with this movie, but I think, I mean, it's still I would say is not that dark in the sense no, that like it's, it's just so campy that I really think it's possible to watch it and enjoy it and like not think about the horrors of conversion therapy but the actual thing that i like my biggest gripe with this movie is that it sort of felt like they just used like scenes of conversion therapy as like just like gratuitous scenes of abuse and it didn't really add to the plot um i'm definitely not one of those people who's like you should never show anything bad on screen like there are depictions of homophobic abuse in film that i find very powerful and worthwhile it's just that like this specifically did not feel thoughtful at all it felt more like how like you know like there will be like the discussion around game of thrones having so many scenes of sexual violence for example it's like at a certain point if it doesn't really do anything to like tell you more about the story the characters whatever it can also just serve as sort of a way to like heighten emotional tension without having to do that much creative work which again is like not inherently bad like the emotional tension is heightened because it's a really horrible thing to happen but it is also like a trick that a bad filmmaker can use to kind of like cover up the fact that they didn't do that much character work in this film by instead just having like horrible things happen to all the main characters to like force you to feel bad for them in a way you might not in a more intense way than you might otherwise um and i think like in this specific case the i guess i'm just gonna spoil this because i honestly don't think i don't think it's possible to spoil this movie in the sense that it's already a bad movie to begin with but the person podcast yes so true um yes the person who ends up being the killer is like a former attendee of the camp which like sort of gets at that idea that a lot of people running these camps are like abuse victims of these camps but it doesn't really explore like that link between experiencing that abuse and then why that's led her to do this so it just Mm -hmm. ended up feeling sort of random that we see this abuse but it's not like linked to any of the major plot developments or like the main sort of murder plot of the movie yeah and i also feel like i was excited at first when in the beginning when everyone shows up the people running the camp are like trying to be like cool libs and yes i was excited because i was like oh they're going to show how dangerous liberalism is 
Right. Which like, you had an opportunity to, like, like, sort of similar to Get Out, showing, like, the, like, good white person, but, like, right. how that still is racist. So um, fucked up. Exactly. Like, I feel like there was a similar opportunity that they just fully missed. Exactly, because the film was made by libs, and that is what it really boils yes. down to. <laughs> and it's just, like, they had so many different opportunities to show this from a perspective that felt at all tied to any type of real experience. Um, yeah, it, it, but at the same time, I think it's fun in, in a brain candy sort of like, okay, you got to know it's bad, but because we're queer and they're talking about us, like, it's kind of ridiculous to see, like, how it's how they decided to tell this story, even though we have many (laughs) critiques about it. (laughs) And, like, honestly, I still enjoyed watching it. I mean, I still watched it at least twice. So, you know, you can watch it and make your own opinion. But two books that I am very excited about, one of which I've already read and one of which I haven't because it's not out yet, but I am excited about it. So the first one is called Camp Damascus. It's by Chuck Tingle, and it just came out this year. Um, For anyone who's not familiar with, like, who Chuck Tingle is generally, um, basically, it's really funny because I was working on this episode and I, like, had a dream last night that Chuck Tingle's real identity was revealed because it's a pseudonym. Um, But... Anyway, I'm not even going to tell you, like, who the real identity was in the dream, because, like, I honestly think it might be too close to the truth that, like, I can't even say it, because I don't want this to be a drill situation. You literally are a Grand Water Trine, so that makes fucking (laughs) sense. Um, but, yeah, anyway, I don't, I do not want to dox Chuck Tingle, but he is an anonymous (laughs) author who when he appears in public, always wears like a pink ski mask and sunglasses to disguise who he is. And he writes, before this book, he almost entirely wrote like self-published erotica on Amazon. Um, It's like, just like the wackiest, silliest erotica you could think of. He writes like dinosaur porn. He has a book called Pounded in the Butt by My Own Butt. Um, It's like that sort of just like really like hyper campy over the top, um, silly erotica um but he has this sort of cult following and like he is on twitter um and like that's how i first heard of his work and like knew who he was because he writes a lot of funny tweets but this is his first book to be published by like a mainstream publisher um and it's about a conversion camp basically this young woman who lives in a town that runs a conversion camp and she's part of the organization the christian organization that runs it And she starts having these weird, like, flashbacks of, like, demons following her. And she's sort of trying to figure out, like, are these demons following me because I'm doing something sinful? Are the demons, like, do the demons want me to sin? Like, what's up? What do the demons have to do with this conversion camp? Um, It's really, like, if you ever read those YA novels um, by Rick Riordan, Percy Jackson that they were about like uh Greek mm. gods and goddesses in the modern world basically it has a little bit of that energy cuz it's sort of like th- biblical things like having a real world component like there being mm. actual yes. demons on earth um but i also think that its take on like what the relationship between the demons and the christian church is is 
fascinating. And it's also, though it has like some scenes of like emotional abuse against queer people, it's not heavy on descriptions of like physical abuse or it, it really doesn't focus heavily on the things that happen at the conversion camp because it's actually about someone who is not at the camp currently and like she she doesn't spend most of her time at the camp in this book um so it's like it's possible to read it and just like and not focus on sort of like the most intensely horrible things about conversion therapy but um it also has a great happy ending um the other book i want to talk about is called cuckoo um and it's by gretchen falker martin it's supposed to come out next year i do know that it's already like the first draft is done being written and it's just like going through the production process um it seems like it's been delayed a couple of times so i'm not sure exactly what's going on with that but gretchen falker martin for anyone who doesn't know is this amazing horror author she wrote this book recently called manhunt um that's very trans and it's kind of like a gender zombie novel um which i loved so i'm really excited to read her next book which is about um a conversion camp where basically these kids it takes place in the 90s um and it's a group of queer kids whose parents send them to this camp and they start to realize like weird things are going on at this camp and like basically something is like replacing kids with like a copy of them that's straight and they're trying to figure out like how is this happening and also like what happened to our real friends who were disappeared and turned into straight like uh stepford wives people i realize you know? this is an audio medium but addy's face is killing me right now <laughs> <laughs> uh, i don't even know how to describe that face i was just like yeah <laughs> just like staying mixed with like so skeptical <laughs> skeptical of the ones that aren't their of actual the friends skeptical of the yes exactly yes, yes. it's I it's was definitely so in. i was like oh my god <laughs> you were yeah, deeply it... invested it sounds it sounds great um and i think like i don't know i'm really interested to see sort of like how it will compare to camp damascus because i honestly think from what i've heard about it and what i know of gretchen's work i feel like it will likely be quite different um in some ways and so i'm just really interested to see like how they compare but those are both things to look out for slash go by now in the case of chuck tingle's book um but after you do that, you should take the rest of your funds and head on over to patreon.com slash season of the bitch, where you can... <laughs> no, did I fuck it up? No! Is it season of the bitch? Not at all. I just can't stop laughing at Adelaide's face. <laughs> well, because I literally started dancing and then I knocked into the chair next to me and then I was like, oh, fuck. And then I was like... Oh, my God. Oh my I'm God. not even looking at the Zoom right now. So that's why I have no idea what's going on. Maddie and I those moments where you look at each other and can't stop laughing <laughs> we're on zoom <laughs> incredible uh, yeah no literally uh, though yes okay no, so you did it perfectly <laughs> yeah you're doing everything um, so perfect <laughs> patreon.com slash season of the bitch where you can 
sign up to join our Discord community where we talk all about um, media like this and also like, you know, news updates of what is going on in the horrible real world of conversion therapy. And um, our lives. Also, yes, and our lives, always. Um, <laughs> also the horrible updates of our lives. <laughs> exactly. And the good updates. <laughs> you get them all. Uh, it's all there. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. Visit our website, seasonofthebee.com, and rate, review, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us right now. And give us five stars. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That's it for this week. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. the bitch.